good morning again. Uh, as we come into the Word of God, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's one nearby, under, under a seat nearby, and you can grab that as well and open up. Or, of course, you can always use a phone or a tablet or whatever you want. Uh, but we're going to be in Romans 12 and actually 13 today. But as we start off, I just want, to, want you to think about this for a second. There's a, there's a concept that's coming up, and I want you, if you would, in your imagination, just kind of come into this visual uh, idea with me, this, this kind of thought experiment. Imagine, you know how everyone of us gets a credit score? You know, we're assigned this number that kind of says whether you're a good credit risk or a bad credit risk. Right? And, and every one of us, probably even if you don't know that you have one, you might have one because there are these organizations that do this and they kind of give you a score. And I don't know what the lowest scores are and the highest scores are. I think it's maybe somewhere between five and 800 or something like that. Does anyone know those numbers? It's not that important. But imagine that everywhere you went, you had to wear that number on your chest. So when you walk around, everyone sees that number and says, it basically draws a conclusion about you regarding what kind of risk you are for credit, right? And, and of course, if you're a bad risk for credit, it's probably because you have not paid your debts. It's probably because you've defaulted on a loan. It's probably because you've taken out a lot of credit and haven't paid a lot back, right? And if you have a really high credit number, if that means you're a better risk for credit, it's probably because you either have very consistently paid all your, the loans that you owe and the amount of credit that's available to you and the amount you use, uh, that ratio is very small. So that's kind of how those things work, right? Now today we're going to talk about this concept about being in the debt of love. So let's take that same thought experiment and then ask yourself, what would it be like if I were given a number for my credit worthiness for love. What would it look like if I were assigned a value that said, if you love this person, there's a very good chance that you're gonna receive love in return, or that you may not receive anything in return. And then we all walked around on our chest with a number. And let's say if we were poor at loving well, we got a lower number. And if we were really good at receiving and giving love, we ended up with a higher number. And what kind of judgments would people make about us then? Not so much whether you had good finances, but about whether you were the kind of person that might be a good friend, or a good marriage partner, or a good parent, or a good church member. You know, the kind of things that, that impact our relationships in everyday life. So as we talk about love today, the sacrificial love that's modeled by Jesus Christ. I don't want you to carry that image with you as a burden, but just kind of as a, a way of thinking about and a way of kind of uh, considering how we think ourselves of the love we receive and the love we give. So as we look in Romans 12, the very first thing that I want to remind you of is at the beginning of this chapter in Romans 12, we have these two verses that are very famous that are really guiding and governing everything that we're going to look at for the rest of the book of Romans. We've gone through from chapter 1 all the way, now we're in chapter 12 and 13 today, 
And these verses are govern governing and impacting and influencing everything that we talk about going forward. And Romans chapter 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And what Paul is saying to us, and first to the Roman church, but by extension to all of us, is that there's a way of living, there's a way of living that we can kind of move into, not because we're better people than some other people, not because we've got more determination than other people or more discipline than other people, but because of all the things that he said before, which is, we can be in relationship with God by faith through grace in such a way that we are made to look like Jesus. That's the goal of our life, to be like Jesus. That's the purpose. And as I was talking earlier, this service, just about we have a calling and a purpose, part of it is, and the, the bulk of it is, to look like Jesus on the other side. And so what Paul does now is he starts to explain to us this is what it looks like this is what life is like as you become more and more like your Savior. And so one of the prerequisites, really, of what I'm going to talk about is the idea that Jesus is your Savior. I'm going to pause for a moment. Hey, girls, 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 we need you to be quiet so we can uh, concentrate and listen well, okay? Thank you. I don't mean to embarrass anyone, but... We just need that, all right? Uh, one of the prerequisites to this kind of life, truly, is to have that relationship with Jesus. Because there are a lot of people in the world, in the history of the world, but even today, who might look at this Bible, might look at this as something like uh, a good idea of how to live, right? There's a lot of good morals here. There's a lot of good ideas about how to have, I think, a fulfilling life, and I would even say, go so far as say, a happier life. That when you live the way this book describes, I think you will have more joy in your life. But the problem is, if we try to live these things out without the power of Jesus, we will find ourselves in a very difficult position. Because we will not be able to be the kind of people we want to be. We will not be able to live the kind of life that we're called to live outside of the power of Christ. Right? It's the love of God. It's the grace of God. It's the, the infusing of His Holy Spirit that allows us to finally begin to break out of the shackles of our own sin, our own brokenness, our own hurts, our own fears and failures, the things that have been inflicted upon us, right, that impact us to this day. The freedom from all of that is found ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so when this idea of being transformed by the renewing of your mind it actually begins in the heart. It begins in this place of surrender to Jesus Christ. So let's see what Paul actually says about how to have that transformed life, how to live out of that transformed mind, how to be a living sacrifice. And he says in verse 9 that love must be sincere. Hate what is evil Cling to what is good. 
Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And do not be conceited. Let's just stop right there. When I look at this section, when I look at these list of things, they all look like, to me, really good things, right? These are the kind of ways that I think most of us would want to live our life. I had a conversation, not, not with anyone here in the church. It was totally outside, uh, and they don't, he doesn't live anywhere near here, and he's not going to see this. <laughs> I had a conversation with a guy this last week, and I, he walked in the room. I reached out to shake his hand, and he looked so sour. And I thought, oh, maybe this guy's having a bad day. Like, that's the first thing I thought when he walked in the room. And then he opened his mouth, and I think he put all doubts to rest. This guy wasn't having a bad day. This guy was having a bad life. He complained. Every single word out of his mouth was a complaint. Every single one. And even the things that he was talking about that were sort of good, the way he spoke about them was negative. And at the end of the conversation, you know, and, you know, I even questioned, should I have done this? But I said, nice to meet you. And I smiled at him. And even then, he was just like, hmm, yeah. And I thought, wow. Imagine, maybe you can imagine living like that. Maybe you have lived like that. Maybe you know what it's like to just be grumpy everywhere you go. Always. But I don't think anyone sets out in life and says, when I grow up, I want to be a grumpy and bitter and mean old son of a gun. That's what I want to be when I grow up. In fact, I, I want to be, when I grow up, I want to be the guy that yells at the kids to get off my lawn. When I grow up, I want to be the kind of person that most people don't want to be around, and then I can just enjoy myself, or not enjoy myself, on my own for the rest of my life. That's what I want to be when I grow up. In fact, I, if I could really have what I want, my kids would hate me, my neighbors would mock me and scorn me. And if I ever needed help, I'd definitely have to pay for it because no one would be there to help me out for free. Now, it's possible this guy was just having a really bad day. But that's not the impression I got. Right? So to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. These sound like wonderful things that we would all aspire to in our life. But if we just read this passage as a list of to-dos, then we've missed the point. We've missed it. Paul says at the very beginning, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And if you know anything about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, you knew that you had to bring certain types of sacrifices to God. And we talked about this a few weeks ago on that, when I preached on Romans 12, 1 and 2. But something that is holy is something that is set apart. We think of holiness as being the same as righteousness. Holiness means to be set apart. 
And so for most things in the world, to be holy means to be set apart for the worship and service of God. So in the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish people had two sets of dishes. They had their common dishes and they had their holy dishes. And the holy dishes were used for holy meals, special meals. The priests had regular clothes and holy clothes. It's not that the, it's not that the ephod and the tunic and the turban, it's not that they had, you know, repented of their sins and, and were on the straight and narrow. No, they were just the clothes that were set apart for the service of God. And in the same way, it's true that the priests were not necessarily more righteous than the other people in the country, in the nation, but they were the people who were set apart to serve God in the temple. And so if you wanted to bring a sacrifice to God, then you had to bring a sacrifice that mirrored the kind of God you were going to worship. And since God is righteous and God is pure and God is without blemish, then you had to bring an animal that was without blemish. Ironically and interestingly, an animal that was only one color. If there were two colors in the animal, you couldn't bring it as a sacrifice. Not because there's anything wrong with a mixed color animal, but because it needs to symbolize the purity of God. God is not a mixture of parts, that he is singular in his essence. Right? And so if you're going to be a sacrifice, then you need to look like the God you're being sacrificed for. And where does Paul find the clearest expression of what God is like? Well, in Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, he's just extending the argument that he made four chapters earlier that our destiny is to be conformed into the image of God's Son, in the image of Jesus Christ that our call in life is to look like Jesus. So if Paul says, hey, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, be a living sacrifice for God, and I want your love to be sincere, why would he say that? Because when we look at Jesus Christ, his love is sincere. How does Jesus show his love? How has he shown his love to us? Well, he did show his love first to his father by being righteous by being holy by being set apart for the father you know our family was talking uh, last week about the moment when Jesus is sent out into the wilderness after his baptism to be tempted by Satan do you guys know that story so Jesus he you know John the Baptist dunks him in the water baptizes him and then Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days (laughs) for 40 days and he doesn't eat right he doesn't take any food with him and the Bible says that he was ministered to by angels but then at the end of the 40 days you would think when the when the temptations that he would be experiencing physically emotionally and spiritually are at their greatest at their height Satan enters in and tempts Jesus and he tempts Jesus three times Jesus, in a sense, passes every test. 
And part of what Jesus is doing there is he's in the, he's in the wilderness for 40 days because the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. They were in the wilderness for 40 years because they had failed to be obedient to the Lord. And Jesus shows that he is obedient to the Lord. So Jesus is the new righteous Israel. So when Israel wasn't righteous, Jesus is. But in the same way, Jesus is being tempted directly by Satan, just like Adam and Eve were in the garden. And where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeds. So Jesus is the new Adam. Right? He's the new representative of all humanity. And where humanity failed, not just Israel, but all humanity failed, Jesus prevails. Jesus confirms both to the Father and to all of us that he is obedient to God. He is righteous. And that's one of the ways Jesus shows his love. Because he loves his Father so much that he does what his Father asks him to do. Right. Have you guys ever been in a situation where someone asks you to do something and you thought, no, this, this is not something I want to do? In fact, this may not turn out that well, but I love this person so much that I'm going to do what they've asked. You ever been there? Yeah. Obedience can be motivated by obligation, but in its purest, best sense, obedience is always motivated by love. So Jesus shows his love through obedience. He definitely shows genuine affection for us, doesn't he? How did Jesus live his life with the disciples? If you, if you read the Gospels in the Scripture, um, you see over and over Jesus being tender and caring, Jesus being generous and loving uh, to the people around him. I really enjoy and appreciate and love the way we see Jesus interacting with women in the scripture. Because in the culture at that time, a lot of times women were either not considered as important, they were they didn't have the same rights that men had, and they certainly didn't have the esteem in the culture that men had. And Jesus almost goes out of his way over and over and over to show love to these women. You think of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who has uh, he says, where is your husband? She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had multiple husbands, and the man you're with now is not even your husband. But he doesn't say it to shame her. He actually lifts her up and builds her up, and she becomes uh, a messenger of the kingdom of God, the Messiah, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she's the one whose testimony goes out to the Samaritans to let them know the Messiah is here. And guys, in court, a woman couldn't even give testimony. Yet Jesus uses her to give testimony about himself before any man in Samaria. The Syrophoenician woman who asked Jesus to heal her daughter, and Jesus says, I've come, I've come for Israel. I haven't come for the Gentiles. And, and he says, it wouldn't be right to give the food for, for your children and, and then give it to the dogs. And she says, but don't even the dogs get to lick the crumbs that fall from the children's table? And Jesus says, I forget the exact wording, but he says something like, you have the greatest faith that I've seen. She has faith. She, she, realizes, uh, she realizes that I don't even need, I don't even need uh, the primary gifts Jesus has. Just the crumbs of the gifts of Jesus are enough for me because she understands that he's so great. 
that even the littlest bit of attention he gives her daughter will be a wonderful miracle. And of course, Jesus heals her daughter. You know, I think of the, the, uh, the time when Jesus is at the Pharisee's house and a woman comes in with a jar of perfume, an alabaster jar, and she, she breaks it open and, and puts it on his feet and, and she's weeping on him. And, you know, there's different accounts of this and she's like drying his feet with her hair. She weeps on him. And this Pharisee's thinking, oh, if this were a real prophet, he would know this woman is a prostitute. And Jesus says, are you kidding me? I came into your house, and you didn't offer to wash my feet. You didn't offer me really the kind of hospitality that I deserve. But this woman is willing to go to great length and expense to shower love on me, and she will be remembered as long as this gospel is preached. You know, this is a really incredible way that Jesus is so loving genuine love. And in the stories, each of those stories, it's also clear that Jesus doesn't care who you are. You know, that, that phrase, he's, God is no respecter of persons. You could be a powerful, powerful official in Rome, and Jesus can, you know, be like, eh, I, I don't really have that much to say to you. Or you could be a woman who's filled with demons and Jesus stops and tenderly looks you in the face and, you know, casts out the demons and calls you into his entourage as part of his ministry team. And it's just kind of crazy, upside-down world that Jesus operates in. But he does it out of love. If he were doing it for himself, he would get the most powerful people to come around him. But he's not thinking primarily of himself. He's thinking primarily of others, which is why Jesus also, it's also said, uh, he says to his disciples when he's washing their feet, he says, I didn't come here to be served. I came here to serve. And so you get this picture of Jesus' love. Um, Daryl, can you advance that slide? I don't know why it's not working. Uh, that he's got all these wonderful attributes of just, again, his, his generosity, uh, his not being a respecter of persons, his, uh, his genuine affection, his, his obedience, his righteousness. His love is sacrificial. Right? Jesus says in Philippians 2 that he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to and to be grasped, but he let it go. He let go of his prerogatives as God. He let go of the glory of heaven. He let go of all of this to come to earth. He gave it all up to come to earth so that he could be not only one of us but the servant of us all to the point of losing his life. You know, I like serving people. I really do. I have a hard time imagining how it would go if I said, well, I'm going to serve you to the extent that I'll have no house and home that I'll have no financial resources, that I'll, you know, I'll have one, you know, one outfit that I'll wear for the next 15 years, and, and at the end, I'm going to die. I'm going to die for you. Uh, and, and you know what? Don't worry about it. I don't need anything in return. If I were to do that, it would still be nothing compared to what Jesus has done, but I don't think I have it within me to do that. You know, I read the book Boundaries, like, hey, we're crossing a line here. Jesus is like, ah, there's the line? All right, all right, let's, 
There's another line? Okay. There's another, oh, we don't need that line. Like, Jesus is off the reservation. He is, like, off the charts. He's off the, everything that you can imagine for a grid of where Jesus should be, he's like, I'm out of here. I'm doing it this way instead. And it's all motivated by love. And here's the clincher. Motivated by love for his father and motivated by love for you and me. So when we read this again, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. I used to read that, I'm like, how does hate what is evil, cling to what is good, have to do with having sincere love? And I thought, oh yeah, because that's how Jesus loved the Father. And the love of Father has to precede my love for each one of you. I have to admit, growing up, like every young person, I think, I thought mostly about what I could get in life, what I could do, what I could have. As, as I fell more in love with God, then I started to fall more in love with the church. Right? It was a natural extension. I didn't like going to church. I didn't like, you know, the Bible studies. I didn't like a quiet time. I didn't like any of that stuff. And then I had an encounter with Jesus, an encounter with the Lord. My heart was changed. And all of a sudden, these things became very appealing. My love of God transferred into love of his church, love of people, love for the lost. Now, I, all of a sudden, I wanted to share the gospel. All of a sudden, I wanted to learn so that I could share it with others. All of a sudden, I wanted to take my free time and use it in service for others because I love God. And that's the kind of love Jesus had. So this isn't like a random list. It's all related. Love must be sincere for God first and for others. If you love God first, you hate what's evil, you cling to what's good, but you also hate what's evil for others and cling to what's good for others. Be devoted to one another in love, just like Jesus was. Jesus didn't back out when it got hard. Honor one another above yourselves, just like Jesus did. He made himself low so that we could be brought up high, right? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. If that's not Jesus Christ, then who is it? Who's your model for enduring hardship? Right? It's Jesus Christ who in the hardest, most difficult moment of his life, two things are said about him. One that he says, one said about him. In the Gospels, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's going to his death, and he cries out, Lord, may this cup be passed from me, but not my will, yours be done. And in Hebrews 12, it's said of him that for the joy set before him, he endured, the scorn, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. Right? Jesus was patient in affliction because he had so much trust in the Father whom he loved that he knew he was going to come out on the other side. And he prayed to him. He was... He still had hope. And, you know, it's hard to see the joy in Jesus on the cross, right? Because it's such a difficult moment. And I think you get a glimpse of it when that other guy on the cross says, Hey, can I go where you're going? He says, Remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And he says, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. I 
imagine, and I don't think I'm, I don't think this is a stretch of the imagination. I imagine what, to whatever degree Jesus could look over and smile at that man and offer him a look of love and tenderness as he said, you'll be with me in paradise. That's what that man saw on the face of Jesus as Jesus was dying, still serving others. Share with the Lord's people for our need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Why? Because that's what God does. If you're going to be a holy sacrifice, you have to look like the God you serve. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. You know, uh, it can be hard for us not to judge one another. And of course, you know, part of the reason Paul wrote this letter is that the Roman Christians were judging one another. Um, I was at an event uh, recently, and it was in Boston, and it was at a church. It's actually at Line of Judah. And um, we were serving the food. And you know how you, you go to a food line, it was good food, right? And um, you kind of like, like oh, you anticipate, right? Your mouth starts to water a little bit. You're smelling that food. It's, it's, it's like, oh. And you see it. And it's appealing. It's going to be good, right? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, all that stuff, right? And then all of a sudden, I smelled something really pungent. I got had a little bit of a cold, sorry. food are they serving here? And I look over, and right behind me, I had been talking, right beside me, was a woman who was clearly homeless. And my first impulse was, I want to go to the other side of the table. That was my first impulse. And I think we have those impulses in us. We have those quick judgments where we see someone, maybe, you know, maybe we're not so lofty that, oh, we can't hang out with the peasants. You know, maybe we're not in that place. But maybe we're at a place where, you know, I take a shower every day, I use soap, I'm clean, I brush my teeth, right? So, I, I don't want to be around people who smell bad. Like, maybe that's, maybe that's what it looks like. Or, or maybe, maybe you have one of those biases against certain types of immigrants. You think, oh, you know, there's us and there's those people. Or maybe it's against a different political party. Right? Or maybe it's against a certain neighborhood. Or maybe it's against, and you fill in the blank. And you have that impulse. And, may, you know, and hopefully you remember who you are and whose you are and who they are and whose they are and you remember, oh, I, I can't judge this person. Oh, I can't, you know, I can't do this. So, you know, I stayed on that side of the table. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do my best to uh, actually talk to this woman who's here, clearly, off the streets, at, a, at what was a, a celebration with food, nice food, right? And I thought, this person deserves to be here every bit as much as I do. And I, the thing that 
my mind also jumped to is when I was in college, uh, I went to Nicaragua with our church group. And the youth pastor that I had, his name is Don Gilbert. He's still living. And he was one of the most loving people in, like, when he, with people he'd never met before. And I remember we were out in, in Managua, which is the capital city, and there's just a lot of poverty in that place. And we were in this square, and there were all these street children just running around. You know, no families, no home, best we could tell. And I watched some of the adults who were there with us, and when the children came up to them, they recoiled, right? And they're thinking, I don't want to give them my money. I don't want to have anything to do with these children. And then I watched Don Gilbert get down on his knees and embrace these kids and hug. And I thought, that's what I want to be like. That's what I want to be like. And I remembered that as my impulse was to go to the other side of the table. And it's just a reminder to me, like I, it is not easy for us to become the people we want to be. But it is possible through the power of Christ. And Don was someone who knew the love of God in his own life and he gave it to others. Not perfectly, all sorts of things that, you know, whatever. But he had that joy for others. The kind that I think Christ would have. The kind that like Jesus had when he said, do not hinder the children from coming to me. I don't think he would have cared much if they smelled bad. And they all did, right? Everyone smelled bad back then, right? And he just receives them. But now, we're going to skip a bit because Paul talks about love again in the very next chapter. And so if you look in Romans 13, verse 8, he says this, Let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now in the intervening verses, Paul is talking about paying your taxes and, you know, submitting to the government. And so he's kind of on this theme of giving what you owe already. And, it, and Paul does this all the time. We've seen it. He talks about something, he gets distracted, and then he comes back, right? You know, this is not, this is not a term paper Paul's writing. He's dictating and someone's jotting it down, right? And then he gets, he's like, oh, Roman taxes. Let's talk about that for a second. And then, oh, yeah, I was talking about love. Let's go back there. And so we're looking at it today. He says, love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And this is where I kind of get to this idea of how much love should you give? How much of this stuff that Paul's talking about should you do? And I think Paul's answer in one sense is, You'll never be able to give enough because the love that's already been given to you has created such a debt that you will never be able to repay it. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of effort. There's no amount of sincerity that we could offer to God to redeem the life of another. And yet Jesus has given himself in such a way that he has offered redemption to all. 
Jesus has paid the ultimate price. And that debt can never be repaid. And it's almost like, um, you know, again, it, there's, there's, no, there's no way to categorize this, but, you know, richest man on earth right now, I think, is Elon Musk again. Right? They've been kind of jockeying and, and uh, Jeff Bezos and, you know, Gates has given all his money away and, uh, you know, so it's, they're kind of like any of, the, any of those like multi-multi-billionaire type folks, right? Richest person on earth. Imagine you're walking down the street. This, this, this happened to me recently. I was actually in a store and I was 10 cents shy for what I needed to purchase. And I had left my, I had left my wallet at home. Do not do that. I don't advise you. I was scrounging in my car for money so I didn't have to go back home and come back and buy the thing and go back. So I'm scrounging and I'm like, I've got a couple of bills, I've got the loose change tray and I'm like scrounging for money and I'm counting out the pennies, right? And I'm 10 cents shy. Now imagine I'm walking back into the store. I had already left because I thought I had my wallet and they're like, oh, you don't have your wallet. I'm like, hold it, I'll be right back and they held it for me. So imagine coming back in, and there's Elon Musk. And I'm like, Elon, I know we don't know each other, but dude, 10 cents to spare? And imagine he's like, sure, man, I'll give you, like, like he keeps dimes in his pocket, right? But he gives me the 10 cents. And I'm like, I'll pay you back. <laughs> What's he going to say? Don't waste my time, right? Don't waste my time. But if Elon is a, has his wits about him, and he seems like the kind of guy who might have his wits about him, he might say, you know what? Pay it forward. Pay it forward. I don't need it, but I know someone else out there might. But imagine it's the God of the universe giving his life for you. And so he hasn't given you 10 cents out of his billions but he's actually giving you everything that he has, and it's billions. Then what do you do in return? Well, you then have to sacrifice your own life. You have to be a living sacrifice for others. Not because you have to, but because, by golly, you get to. Because God has been so good to me that I can... I can make sacrifices to serve others, right? I could, I could do something that is not as beneficial to me because it will benefit the people that I care about and people that I don't know and people that blah, blah, like anywhere you go, right? And that's what he's talking about in here. And he makes this point, you know, the commandments say don't commit adultery. The commandments say don't murder. The commandments say, don't steal. The commandments say, don't covet. And whatever other command that might be, it's summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you know how this whole book of Romans, Paul has been saying it's not about the law. It's about faith and grace and all that good stuff, right? And in Romans 3, he says... Uh, grace does not abolish the law. Grace is the fulfillment of the law. And so I think he's finally coming full circle and he's saying, look, if you love like Jesus loved, you don't even need the law. 
You don't need the rules because all the rules are designed to have you do the right thing for God and others. But if you love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus says the number one commandment. And then the number two is like it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul's quoting the exact same scripture that Jesus quoted. That you don't need the law anymore. And so truly, faith and love and grace, they truly are the only things you need. Now here's what we do. We read this passage and we turn it into a law for ourselves. Like, okay, give me the list. All right, Stephen, there's the list. Righteousness, obedience, affection, generosity, being sacrificial, faithful, humble, no respect of persons. Okay, all right, I think I can do that. I think I can do this list. All right, maybe I should write it down. Uh, can, I, uh, yeah, can I put it in my notes somewhere so that, uh, so that I can come back and remember what it is so I can do it? But you know what? When that moment comes and you're in line at the buffet and all of a sudden the food smells bad, you don't have time to pull out the list before you decide that you don't want to be on that side of the table. You don't cultivate a relationship with the list. You cultivate a relationship with the Savior who loves you. And when you're in the line of the buffet and you smell that smell, but Jesus has transformed your heart in such a way that you are glad you're on that side of the table, you don't need the list. You don't need the rules. All right. Since I've perfected this. Oh, wait. I haven't. But I do know that every time in my life when I'm consistently with Jesus, I live more like him. And every time I'm consistently not with Jesus, I live more like me. I can tell you with confidence that just like last week <laughs> when we were talking about uh, thinking of ourselves appropriately and properly in relation to our giftings. The same this week. The message is, yeah, there's these things to do, but it all comes back to a loving relationship with your Father, a loving relationship with your Savior, a loving relationship with the Holy Spirit, and then letting that love pour out in, from your life into the lives of the people around you. You know, we can be indebted to the law, but that's a debt that can be paid for the most part. But when you're indebted to love, you can't repay that debt. And so the invitation here is to grow in love. That takes time, it takes intentionality, just like any of your other relationships. The fruit of it is a transformed mind transform heart, transform life such that you can be that living sacrifice and you'll be grateful that you could be that living sacrifice. I have my little takeaway here, I think. Yeah. And I forgot to mention, you know, it's not just that Jesus does these things. 
you know, when I said that to be a holy sacrifice, you've got to be like the God that you're set apart for. It's not just that Jesus acts loving. It's that God is, in his essence, love. Jesus, in his essence, is love. He is love. And he's inviting you to become love as well. So I want to pray for you. I want to give you a moment to reflect. Not on, the question is not, God, how do I do these things better? Okay, that's the wrong question. The question is, God, how can I be in such deep relationship with you that I just become more like you in the process? And ask the Lord, is there anything that you want me to do? Anything that, any time you want me to set aside, any... You know, we talk about practices. You know, we did our ID statement. We're a community of practice. Maybe there's some practices that the Lord is inviting you into. Uh, maybe it's daily time in the Word or more time in prayer. Or maybe it's time listening. Or, uh, you know, maybe it's uh, uh, some act of service that you can do on a regular basis to cultivate that love for others. You just ask the Lord, what is it you want me to do to step more fully into your love and then love for others? So let me pray. Lord God, we, we are so alert uh, when we read passages like this that our lives are typically not marked by the kind of love that marks the life of Christ. Uh, I'm, a, I'm acutely aware, even just in those little stories, of how easy it is uh, to, to look down on someone, to judge someone, to think that I'm maybe better than I am and not respond out of love. And God, I've tried harder and we've all tried harder. So God, what we're asking for today is not that we would try harder. What we're asking for today, Lord, is that you would once again invite us into the kind of transformative relationship uh, that produces these things in us. So that we can embody them not as a not as a function of uh, just responsibility and duty, but that we can embody them as a function of joy, as a function of overflow, and as a function of our response. Like, hey, we get to be like you, Jesus, and how happy we can be in that. So, Lord, speak to us as we ask you now what it is that you want to do in us, what it is that you want from us uh, to step into this in a deeper way. In Jesus' name.